The story of Jesus is full of healings and miracles and even demons. And the closer you look, the weirder the story seems to get. And like, how can anyone believe any of that stuff actually happened? And even if we do believe it, what does that have to do with our story right now? Those are great questions. So let's talk about it together. What are some of your biggest fears? As a kid, I was terrified of thunderstorms. Like even a big dark cloud would come in and I was worried that there's gonna be lightning and thunder. And I don't even know why, I just hated it. And now this, I have that same feeling towards snakes. And I'm sorry if you like snakes, but man, I just ugh, don't like them. And we all have these different fears and sometimes they're rational, sometimes they're a little irrational. But then there's like those deeper fears, aren't there? Those like, what ifs? What if I don't have what it takes? What if they find out who I really am? What if the kids get sick or what if the kids don't, you know, turn out all right? That used to be a fear of mine that my kids would get sick and die and that type of thing. What if I choose wrong? Like some of you are in the process of maybe choosing a school either for you or your kids or maybe choosing a spouse or maybe even choosing a church, which is why you're checking this out. Sometimes we say like, what if the future doesn't turn out the way I've hoped or planned or, or saved for? And these fears can be crippling and exhausting. In fact, lack of control over our lives can create a fear that takes over our lives. And now if you've been around church enough, you know, probably know what I'm about to say, right? With Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. Jesus says we don't need to worry. And when that fear comes, we can choose to either sit in it or choose to focus on Jesus and who he is. And that's all true. But some of us might have heard that so much, it's become a cliche. Like, it doesn't really do much for us when things, like, really hit the fan. I mean, I've been there, especially these last three years. You know, I've had those sleepless nights and those those worries that just continue, like, to torment and taunt no matter what facts you tell yourself. See, sometimes the hardest thing to trust about the story of Jesus is that we can actually trust Jesus. And we don't really need more knowledge about Jesus. We can always just, you know, go find more facts about Jesus. What we need is to personally experience proof that Jesus actually sees us and can do something about what we are going through right now. And in Mark's account of Jesus' life, we actually discover the proof that we need. We find, uh, we find it just as the story of Jesus starts to get a little weird. And so Mark has laid out, as the last few episodes we've seen, Mark has laid out Jesus' claim to be bringing in the kingdom of God. And Mark has kind of subtly portrayed Jesus as God coming to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, let me ask you this. If God actually, if there is a God, and he actually did come to earth to start a revolution against the old world order and establish his new kingdom of light, what do you think that would like actually look like? Maybe something like this. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. It's not like he walked in and then was like, hey, preacher guy, sit down, I'm teaching now. He didn't like co-opt the service. In fact, the leaders of a synagogue were the ones who chose who would teach. So most likely they had heard Jesus's message. Remember, we see that he's been walking around teaching his message and they'd maybe had some interactions with him. And so they invited him to speak at the synagogue. And normally a teacher who would speak at the synagogue would read from the Jewish scriptures and then sit down and comment on them, usually quoting other teachers. 
they would read like Leviticus and they would say, Moses said an, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, my teacher, Rabbi Shemel, teaches that that not only applies to our bodies, but also our belongings. So if someone breaks your cart, well, then you have the right to break theirs as well. But Jesus was very different. It's kind of like the difference between a teacher who, I don't know, maybe you had these teachers where they just kind of opened the, the teacher's manual and just read from that. The difference between that type of teacher and a teacher who's like lived their material and can enchant a class without any notes and comes up with these cool lessons and that type of stuff. See, Jesus didn't rely on anyone else's expertise or authority for what he said. He taught more like, you've heard the law of, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, forgive your enemies. Turn the other cheek when they hit you. Like he even put his words above their great prophet, Moses. What he's doing is he's teaching what life in the kingdom of God will be like. A life where God's true law of love is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Where we don't have to obey to to earn and keep God's favor, but we are changed from the inside out because of God's love. Jesus unapologetically challenges our preconceived ideas about the world. And the people there had never heard anything like it. Like for us, you know, this is... This is the stuff we like about Jesus. The stuff we kind of get. Like, yeah, no more dead religion. Relationship over religion. Like, love over laws. And we like that stuff. But how do we even know he's right about that? Like, what gives him the right to challenge these hundreds of years of tradition and religion? And and why do we, 2,000 years later, still gravitate towards his teachings? Well, Mark is going to show us. See, we gravitate towards Jesus' teachings because Jesus was more than a teacher. But there's someone in the synagogue who's really not a big fan of Jesus. And this is where things get weird. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Like This is the first of many encounters with demons that we're going to see in this story. And Mark and, and the rest of the New Testament writers like simply assume the existence of demons. And Mark doesn't try to explain what they are and where they come from or anything like that. And I know the existence of like demons and angels and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's hard to believe. But I, I believe they're real. Why? Because Jesus believed they're real. As Pastor Andy Stanley likes to say, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, it's a good idea to believe everything else he says. And so when it comes to demons and that type of stuff, there's really two extremes in the church world, I think. First extreme is there's no such thing, right? Just flat out deny it. These are ancient superstitious people that they didn't really understand mental illness and, and physical illnesses and where they came from. So no such thing. Or then there's the other side that like just completely go overboard where everything is because of the spiritual realm, right? If we're sick or if we're sad, it's demons. If we play Dungeons and Dragons and, and celebrate Halloween, well, then we're opening up ourselves to demons. And there's the demon of alcohol and demon of gambling and the demon of all these different things. And if we lose our job because we mouthed off to our boss, well, that's just Satan trying to get at me, right? And so I think a quick overview of demons in the biblical writings is probably important. So according to Mark and the New Testament writers, there is a spiritual world, a spiritual dimension behind and maybe alongside the one we experience. Paul even wrote, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And it seems there's two sides, two kingdoms in this spiritual dimension. There's God's side with the angels and Satan's side 
with the demons. And these demons somehow are, are fallen angels. And there's a lot of debate on how that happened and, and where they came from and that type of thing. And this is as it's presented in the biblical writings as different than a mental illness or a disease. And we'll see later that Mark actually makes a clear distinction between Jesus casting out demons and healing people. And so demons in biblical writings are, are not ghosts of dead people, but they can represent themselves as that. They can even disguise themselves as helpful spiritual forces or beings. Even Paul says Satan does that. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so that's why, you know, maybe you've heard this, but seances and mediums and fortune tellers and that type of stuff has traditionally been discouraged for Jesus followers. Because it's like asking these unknown spiritual forces to help you in your life instead of relying on the Holy Spirit. And so these demons can be active personalities that can inhabit and control and even speak through a human host. And yet they're, they're different and distinct from that host and often speak with a different voice than that person. So you might be saying, so John, you're saying that everyone who seems unstable is therefore not a Jesus follower and maybe possessed by a demon. No, like mental illness and physical illnesses are absolutely real. But according to the biblical writings, spiritual oppression is also real. And so if like we're dealing with, you know, mental illness or is it demons or whatever, like the sickness, what do we do with that? Well, I say we explore all options. Maybe start with the medical option. And then if that doesn't help, then move on to the spiritual or vice versa. Or kind of do it like you got a medical issue or maybe a mental health issue. You can pray about it and see a licensed professional who knows what they're talking about when this stuff comes. A story. My dad used to get migraines like all the time. And he got he got them for years. And it would take, you know, aspirin and Advil and all that kind of stuff. And, and nothing would really take them away. And so one day he was sitting in his living room, just kind of sitting in this wingback chair, looking out over the yard, and he gets a migraine. And he finally said, you know what? If this is spiritual, then, you know, in the name of Jesus, leave. Leave me alone. And then it went away. And then every time a migraine would come back, he would pray and it would leave. And then finally it never came back. And so, yeah, sometimes it's spiritual and sometimes it's physical. We don't know. So why not explore both options? Now, very common misconceptions that, you know, got Satan over here and Jesus over here and they're equal opposing forces. Satan is not the yang to God's yin. They're not equal opposing spiritual forces. Satan is not Jesus's little brother. In fact, there is no real competition between Jesus and Satan. The spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. That's why that, have you seen that arm wrestling picture of Jesus and Satan were like equally matched and stuff? That's dumb because <laughs> there'd be no competition. Satan's like smaller than an ant compared to Jesus. And so the deal with hell, hell is not like the kingdom of Satan, right? And where he gets to reign and, and rule prisoners and torture prisoners. And then Jesus has heaven and they're like equal. No, hell is not where Satan reigns. Hell is Satan's prison. Jesus even said so. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. So, and if you're interested in like the idea of hell and that, and that stuff, we actually have an episode talking specifically about the different views of hell. You can check that out. So, on the spectrum of not real to scared to death of demons, what is a good approach to Satan and demons? In my opinion... I think we should view them like we view wasps. They're nothing to live in fear of, but they're also really nothing to mess with either. 
And so, yeah, be alert, but don't cower in fear and don't be ridiculous, look like looking for them everywhere under every, everything that goes wrong and that type of thing. And though they are spiritual beings, they're not all powerful, they're not all knowing, and they're not everywhere at once. So can a Jesus follower be possessed by a demon? No, that wouldn't make any sense. Because if the Holy Spirit of God, the personal presence of God, is living in somebody, then there's no room for a demon. So for Jesus followers, yeah, demons in that world can influence us, but they can't win if we actually claim our identity and position in Jesus. See, Jesus is infinitely stronger than any other spiritual force. How do I know that? Where's the proof? Watch this. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. So the man cries out. And from people with experience that I've talked to, the yelling and the screaming, it's it's pretty common when a demon's involved. And this demon knows what the people don't. He knows Jesus' true identity. He knows the authority Jesus has. He knows that Jesus can destroy them. Jesus, but here's something interesting. Jesus and his disciples aren't the only exorcists mentioned in the literature of the ancient Mediterranean world. There's actually a smattering of stories of other people trying to do this exact same thing. But those stories don't really talk about them being successful. It really more talks about their rituals and the objects they use, like the talismans and stuff, and maybe their magical or power words they would use to help fight demons and that type of stuff. But in the ancient literature, Jesus was different. See, Jesus of Nazareth is the only historical figure recorded in ancient writings who has many recorded exorcisms with detailed accounts. And in those accounts, he doesn't use chants and rituals and holy water and talismans and and incantations and that type of stuff. He simply told the demon what to do, and it had to obey. Mark says, this translation says he reprimands, which is like, no, no, don't do that. But no, the better translation would say he rebukes it. And then it says, be quiet, which actually is like, shut up, like knock it off and come out. In the Greek sense there is right now. And it says he ordered the demon. Like, look at that authority he has over it. And then the spirit screamed and threw the man into a convulsion. It's kind of like when you tell your kid to do something and they know they don't really have a choice, like they're going to have to do it, but they have to throw that little tantrum before they obey. Same thing. Now, imagine just for a minute being there and seeing this happen. Amazement gripped the audience and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It is such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Like, no kidding, of course it did. And it says they're gripped by amazement, and they start having an intense discussion about who Jesus really is. Because obviously he's not some ordinary teacher, and he's not some magician pretending to have secret spiritual abilities. This for them is something different. This is something new. This is real authority. And here we see one of the main questions of this entire account of Mark. The question of, Who is this? And immediately, Mark gives us another clue. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. So Jesus goes from doing something amazing at the largest gathering in town to doing something just as amazing in a quiet, private home. You notice he didn't like, he's like, oh, hey, Jesus, my mother-in-law is sick. Could you please help with this? Because you know how in-laws can get. 
but he didn't like wait for the news crew to show up or wait for more people to find out she's sick so they'd know that he healed her. No, he simply and kindly lifted her up and healed her. See, Jesus doesn't just care about the crowds. He personally cares about each individual. And we often think like, oh, sure, you know, Jesus cares about the big things, but what about my little problem? Like, maybe he's too busy to even have me like concerned about it. But isn't that silly? Like, what is big and little to something like Jesus? It's all little. See, Jesus' authority is enough for the world's biggest issues and our smallest problems. Again, it's like we see another eyewitness detail showing that, you know, Mark got his account probably from Peter, where the mom gets up and starts making dinner, right? Like she, she's sick and then she wakes up and she's like, oh, you guys look like you haven't eaten. Eat, come on, eat, eat some more. Now, since most of the town saw what happened at the synagogue, Jesus becomes a local celebrity. So once the Sabbath is over and the people are now able to move around again so they don't break the Sabbath rules, here's what happens. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. And see, again, we see the differentiation that Mark has between casting out demons and healing the sick. Like, they knew the difference there. And it says, because the demons knew who Jesus was, he didn't let them speak. Like, that's weird, right? And throughout the accounts, we see Jesus always telling people to keep the healing secret. Why? Well, Mark never tells us why Jesus wants to keep it a secret. But one of the ideas was that Jesus wasn't looking for fans, right? He's looking for people to follow him into a new kingdom. And he healed because he cared about their problems and wanted to show them the love of the new kingdom, not to impress them and and get a larger crowd. Jesus doesn't use his authority to impress, but to love. And look at it. Who is he healing? Those people who had passed the Bible verse tests, you know, those who he had made sure had confessed all their sins, those who had confessed their sins and then promised to be good. No, everyone, like they came to Jesus and then he simply healed them. Jesus has the authority to accept and heal whomever he wants, which is something that will be questioned as the story continues, including next episode. Now, according to Mark, all these things, the, the, the teaching, the casting out demons and the healing all happened on the same day. Right, that's a big day. Jesus is probably pretty tuckered out. And so what does he do? Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Jesus got some rest. And then he went out for some silence, solitude, and prayer to connect with God the Father, to be refreshed and reminded of his value to the Father, to get his priorities in line with those of the Father. And silence, solitude, and prayer does the same thing for us. It allows those outside noises to fade so that we can hear Jesus more clearly. Like our lives are so busy and so stressful. Our attention is so scattered. It's like this jar of water and sand that somebody really shook up. And we need a way to settle it in the right order. And so we take time to focus on the true priorities of our king and his kingdom, just like Jesus did. And he needed to make sure his priorities are straight because people had their own idea of what Jesus' priorities should be. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. The disciples obviously are excited. Like, this is amazing. You're bringing the kingdom and we're seeing it happen. Now we have some momentum and people are really talking like, this is going to be great. Let's keep this going. 
And Jesus could have like set up shop and maybe even made his own synagogue and had people come from all over for for healing and to listen to his 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. daily teachings from, you know, Rabbi Jesus. And that, that would make sense. I think that's what they all expected. But the kingdom of God rarely looks like what we expect. Jesus's vision was much broader than theirs. Again, he didn't come to get fans. He came to change lives. He came to seek and save the lost so that they could know that they were seen and known and loved by their heavenly father. Jesus's priorities are people, not power. And that is where our story intersects with this story because we are Jesus's priority. The worries and the fears and those what ifs that we have are Jesus's priority. And he either wants to heal us from them or help us put them in their proper perspective. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples after rising from the dead, he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And they believed him. Why? Because he had just risen from the dead like he said he would. Think about it. Jesus has all authority over every dimension we can think of. He has authority over our biggest problems and our smallest problems. And he proved it in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he has promised to always be with us by giving us his personal presence of God to live in us and through us, the Holy Spirit. See, the people of Capernaum wanted Jesus to stay with them, to always be with them so they could have Jesus there to you know, kind of help them and teach them and, and heal them. But in his limited humanity, he couldn't be everywhere at once. Now he can. No matter where we are, no matter what we are doing or what we have done, no matter how difficult the situation seems, if we are a Jesus follower, we can be confident that he is with us. And if Jesus is who he said he is and can do what he said he can do, what is there to actually fear? What do we actually need to be anxious about that it ruins our life? Think about it. Where could we now, now that Jesus has all authority and is always with us, where could we actually find confidence and peace? So here's my invitation for us this week. Make Jesus the authority of your story. Pledge allegiance to him. Say, I am done making myself my authority and I want you to be my king. I want to follow you and discover what that actually means. And it's not just believe that he died and rose again. Jesus' little brother James said, even the demons believe that Jesus died and rose again and they shudder. It's not about just believing something happened. It's about trusting Jesus and following him, making him the king of your life. And so make Jesus the authority of your story. And then memorize Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Memorize that. Not just read it, but commit it to memory. Because then when we start to worry, when things start bombarding us, we can say that passage, that promise of Jesus, that he has all authority, and then pray this. Jesus, help me to trust that this is under your authority. Whatever's going on, help me trust that this is under your authority, and then show me what you can do. Help me trust that this is under your authority and show me what you can do. See, a lot about the story of Jesus can be difficult to believe. Sometimes, again, the hardest thing to believe is that he actually is with us and can truly do something about our lives. Sometimes the hardest thing to trust about the story of Jesus is that we can actually trust Jesus. But as we continue exploring the story, we will see he has proven over and over again that he is trustworthy. And as we walk with him daily in our stories, we will see that we can trust him. And we will discover for ourselves 
that Jesus's authority proves we can trust him with our story. Now, if you're reading along with us, next time we are going to look at Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 40 and going to chapter 2, verse 17. Read along with us and see how Jesus' authority actually plays out in people's lives. Thanks for watching this week's content put out by Cross Creek Community Church. Uh, thanks for joining us on this journey through Mark, the story of Jesus. Uh, there will be lots of content for you available online, YouTube, and podcast. But also don't forget we meet in person on Sundays at 4.30 in South Salem at 525 Idlewood Drive. So find out more on our website, yourcrosscreek.com. We also have uh, stuff for kids this summer, some great lessons put out by the Bible Project. So we're really excited about some of the things that are happening over at Cross Creek, and we're just really glad to see you here online. Uh, send us your information via the welcome form, say hello, uh, request a Bible, request prayer, or join a small group. Uh, it's all online there for you, and we'll see you next week.